We spent that first hour noting that we've hit that number, that benchmark. 25,000 Syrian refugees have now arrived in Canada. Dr. Riza Hasmath from the University of Alberta talked to us about the labor market implications of that. And many of you have been sharing either your personal observations or your personal stories on the text line to 630-630. We'll get back to this in just a little bit. We want to leave some more time to develop this conversation here. But, you know, on the text line, Luke says, if people could have the ability or even the compassion to put the foot on the other shoe, we'd be tripping over ourselves to help these Syrians. Treat others the way you would like to be treated, Luke says. I live by this, and so should you. The so-called golden rule. Another says, I think the big issue is not the fact that, that people are immigrating here or that refugees are arriving. I mean, Canada is a very welcoming country, and it's, it's something that us Canadians are actually quite proud of. The issue, I believe, says this listener, and though I may be wrong, is the fact that terrorism is so front of mind right now, and the, quote, Syrians are often associated with these heinous acts. So it's out of fear and self-protection. Canadians wanting to make sure that this whole story doesn't turn into something different. Spencer from Edmonton says that, you know, there's a lot of Islamophobia right now. 99.9% of Muslims are great people. These right-wing blogs and websites focus quite a bit on anti-Muslim news. In fact, as much as they can. And Boo says, we're all immigrants, let's be honest. But we all came under the same belief. That is, a new life. We'll get to more of your takes, but we don't want to keep Graham Thompson waiting. The Edmonton Journal's political affairs columnist points out, today is the first day the government of Jim Prentice would have actually been allowed to hold an election under Alberta's Election Amendment Act, which, of course, you know, was introduced by the PCs back in 2011. Graham Thompson joining us over the phone. It's, it's been a while since we've chatted. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, big day. Did you have this circled on your calendar four years ago? <laughs> the thing is, you, know, you look back just over a year ago, People were talking about, you know, there's no way the Prentice could call an election before, you know, uh, the spring of 2016. It would be illegal to do that. Of course, the thing is, he could call it earlier. Of course, he did call it earlier. But the law did state, um, under, as you mentioned, the Election Amendment Act, was that the election window was an election couldn't be held before March 1st, 2016, between March 1st and May 31st. And uh, he went early, of course, because the law had a loophole, like all um, fixed election date or fixed election period laws in Canada. The lieutenant governor has the ultimate authority to, uh, to, to, to drop the writ on the advice of the government of the day. So there's always that loophole. There's always that escape clause. And Jim Prentice used it. But the thing is, I, was, I mentioned in my column this morning, I was just looking at this date thinking, gee, Last year, we're all talking about election in 2016. Of course, it went early, and I was just wondering this morning in my column how things would have been much, much different if, in fact, he had waited and obeyed his own provincial law. 
Yeah, we were all speculating uh, yesterday, having a bit of an informal off-air roundtable in the newsroom on would the PCs have won if we would have been heading to the polls today? And you explore a few different options, Graham. Let's go back to the to the sort of you know not maybe not the exact beginning of the story. We'll call it chapter three or four. But you, you'll remember, and, and our listeners will remember that the Jim Prentice justified the early election call because it was a so-called bad news budget, and he said that he was seeking a mandate from Albertans to introduce that budget. In hindsight, is that where it all started going sideways? I think it went sideways before that. I think things went bad for him in that floor crossing. You go back to December of uh, 2014 when the Wild Rose crossed the floor. Of course, you know, you had um, the, the leader, Daniel Smith, and eight others had crossed, and two had crossed before then. So you had 11 people crossing. I think that was seen as sort of the beginning of the end because Prentice, I think, you know, was, was hoping for that for some time. He got it. He thought, aha, I have eviscerated the opposition. And the thing is, people, I think, were upset about that. People across the province, whether you supported the Wild Rose or not, uh, didn't like that uh, to be a very crass political move between the Wild Rose at the time and the PCs under Prentice. That led to Prentice thinking, aha, I've destroyed the opposition. I can go early. And he was using you know, this idea of, yes, I'll, I'll go early now because um, things may get worse. I think he was going early thinking two things. The opposition had been destroyed, and things might actually get worse for the economy, so it's best to go now before it gets any worse. So um, he went early, and people thought there's no real reason to go early. So they were irritated with the floor crossing and then even more irritated with him actually um, calling the election a year early because the government did have that act in place to go in 2016. So, Graham, you assert in your column if Prentice had waited until this year, arguably he would have won. Is that in consideration that we would have had 14 months for the dust to settle on that floor crossing, or do you think that still would have been something they would have been hammered on on the campaign trail? Well, I think you know, they would have been hammered on it, but I think time would have healed. I think that, you know, you've seen maybe the, the, the Wild Rose MLAs who crossed the floor become part of the government and it wouldn't have been the anger wouldn't have been there. So there would still there would still be hammered on the campaign trail, but the dust would have settled. It wouldn't have been such a, a raw wound. And I think also, as I mentioned in my column this morning, people would have seen that his doom and gloom predictions, the grim Jim, as we called him back then, was actually true. That you know things were headed for a cliff when it comes to the price of oil. He was saying you know there'd be a seven billion dollar hole in the budget because of the price of oil, and the price of oil was not going to recover for some time. So I think people would have seen him being proved correct that in fact times were getting tougher and tougher and tougher, and the PCs would have likely would have argued, look, you may not like us. It's been 45 years in power, but. At least, you know, we know how to steer the ship through this turbulent times. And that would have been the argument, that this is not the time to, to change horses uh, in mid or change riders in midstream. So I think that uh, there'd been a better sell, I think, maybe for his uh, Grim Jim routine in 2016, because we would have seen, you know, a year and a half of really tough economic times hit the province. So, Graham, you argue, and, and, and I'll say you argue quite well in your column, that, that, that Jim Prentice and the PC government could get over the hump of what you said was the grim Jim budget, the bad news budget, about a $7 billion deficit, and that Albertans would be okay with it in the context of low oil prices and a slowdown in the economy and, and, and world markets. 
So why is this such an issue for the NDP now? I mean, you know, Notley's first budget, Joe Cece's first budget, was sort of described as an NDP take on a Tory budget. We're expecting the first, quote-unquote, true NDP budget the first couple of weeks of April, and and we've been told to brace for a $10.5 billion deficit, but would it have been any different for the PCs? I mean, why is this such a problem for Rachel Notley when you argue it wouldn't have been for Jim Prentice? Yeah, I think it's a very good point. I think it's because uh, people are saying, look, you know, we changed government, hoping things will get better. In fact, we changed government, things got worse. Now, listen, there's the price of oil. The NDP has no control over the price of oil. But you have a lot of critics out there, on, you know, the conservative critics of the government, both in the Wild Rose and the progressive conservatives, saying she's made things worse, that Rachel Notley has made things worse with uh, this change in government, of course, by, you know, raising corporate taxes, and they're talking about bringing in a uh, carbon tax. And so you've got minimum wages being increased. So you've got people saying that the change in government uh, led to the NDP making things worse. So there's that. And you could argue against that very easily because it is the price of oil. But I think if the NPC that had stayed in power, it's easier for them to have said, look, you can't change now. Things are really getting bad. You think back a year ago, you, the, the, the Jim Prentice talking about how bad things were getting, but you had this much more positive uh, message from the NDP saying, no, you know, things aren't going to be that bad. We, you know, we'll, we'll borrow money. We'll keep investing in infrastructure and things like that. But things are not going to be as bad as uh, Jim Prentice and Payne set out to be. In fact, things are even worse in some ways than what Prentice was talking about. But I think that... You know, you look back, Ryan, to the election campaign, and the NDP was not expecting to win. You know, we thought that the PCs may be knocked back to a minority government or a very small majority government. No one really saw the NDP winning a majority until the final days of the campaign. And I think that the NDP, of course, has the vast majority of them are rookie MLAs are still learning the job, and they're learning the job under really tough times. I think at the time, a year ago, uh, the feeling was the NDP wanted to have a really become a very strong opposition and learn the ropes and then go after the government in 2020, the next election. But things turned out the NDP won by surprise. It caught them off guard, and now they're trying to govern for the very first time as a government in horrific economic times in Alberta. So I think there's, I guess part of the NDP is just wishes that they could have actually held off winning, believe it or not, until 2020, when they could have spent the next four years hammering away at the PC government. Now, of course, this is like a, this is, you know, we, we don't know if this is actually the case. You know, like if there had been an election today, who knows who could have won? I'm just saying that sort of an uh, interesting thought experiment looking at what could have been the case if the PC had simply. Uh, bided their time, being a bit more patient, and actually obeyed the law that they themselves brought in. Graham, this is what newspaper columns and talk radio is designed for. <laughs> the, the spitballing, the speculating, the, the, yeah. you know, the crystal ball on the desk. Uh, you point out that right now, and you, you briefly touched on it, it's going to be a tough year or two uh, for the NDP, the majority government. Obviously, we have some pretty serious negotiations coming up with public sector workers. Many of them will be looking uh, for the guaranteed right to strike, and it could see this government painting itself into a corner. Yeah, this is a fascinating issue because you go back again a year ago, on the, before the election was even called, you had Jim Prentice out there giving his, I called it the Grim Jim speech, talking about how times were going to be tough. He 
paid special attention to the public sector workers, you know, whether it's nurses, uh, teachers, uh, government work, office staff, uh, even doctors basically saying that the public sector was going to account for $2.6 billion in wage increases over, I think it was three years. And so he was pointing to them saying, you know, this is uh, a bad thing, you know, that uh, he would actually um, uh, abide by the current agreements, contracts, but he was looking for some sort of concessions moving down the road. And that, of course, played into the wheelhouse of the NDP who said, this is completely unfair, blaming public sector workers. We are their friend. We'll make sure that uh, they get paid fairly. We'll make sure the government services are not cut. And lo and behold, a year later, the NDP is in power, and it's looking now at contract talks with teachers are starting up this year. The UNA nurses are starting up next year. You've got uh, AUPE, provincial employees, uh, in contract talks this year. You've got them actually in contract talks right now with the Alberta Health Services. And uh, this is the government now is going to be telling the workers there's no money. Um, it, we, we can't give you wage increases. You know, a wage freeze is probably the best they're going to get. So it's interesting watching how the NDP government is now in a position that uh, Prentice was a year ago. I'm not saying the NDP is going to you know, uh, force concessions out of unions, but it's going to strain the relationship between the government, I think, the NDP government and the public sector workers. It'll be fascinating. And point to, yeah, and you, you mentioned also the, um, the right to strike. This was a court decision, Supreme Court decision, uh, over a year and a half ago talking about provinces have to change the, the rules regarding uh, uh, who has the right to strike, and they'll have to go back and redetermine who is deemed an essential service, who gets to strike, who doesn't get to strike. That's going to be a big issue for the NDP dealing with its public sector uh, unions as well. We'll be keeping an eye on that and, of course, keeping an eye on your column. Graham Thompson, thanks for your time this morning. I appreciate that. Thank you. You bet. That's the Edmonton Journal's political affairs columnist, Graham Thompson. Hey, G-Money, you want to give me a backtrack here? You want to give me some tunes to work with? One of the best rock and roll openers of all time. I've air drummed to this more times than I can count. And you could be, oh, no, yeah, just leave it going. I mean, this just, this is, oh, yeah. Oof. Guns N' Roses reuniting. You may have heard a show a quarter century in the making together in Las Vegas. Their first show in more than 20 years. And you could be there. If you haven't visited 630Ched.com to register already, do it now. Yesterday was the first day where we gave you the opportunity to listen in at 7.20 and 10.20 a.m. Today, a special mention at 3.20 p.m. you got to listen for your name. If you hear it, you've got to give us a call within 6 minutes and 30 seconds. You'll be qualified to see the reunion concert of a lifetime. Axel and Slash are friends again. Or at least they're looking to make millions of dollars and put professional and personal differences aside. So Trent Goudreau from White Court. The number to call is 780-496-0063. Trent Goudreau. You could be on your way to see GNR in Las Vegas. We're talking return airfare for two between Edmonton and Sin City. You'll leave April 7th back on the 9th. Two nights accommodation in Vegas. Of course, we're going to make sure you have all your land transfers and all that stuff. Plus, two tickets to see GNR at the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas on April 8th. Their first show in 25 years. We'll be back to get to the text lines after this. <laughs> Topher says, uh, 
Unions versus the NDP. This is like when Shawn Michaels wrestled Marty Jannetty or when Bret Hart took on Jim the Anvil. He says it's going to be a beauty. This, I was going to say I can't wait for it, but that's not, I don't mean to trivialize something that's serious. I mean, we obviously value our teachers and nurses. My mom's a teacher for Pete's sake. My dad's a doctor that has employed nurses. So I'm not, you know, I'm not cracking on these unions. I'm just saying, you know, unions want to get the most bang for buck for their union members. They look out for their best interests as they should. It makes sense. I know that's why a lot of you don't have an appetite for unions. Uh, Gina, is that Trent Goudreau on the phone, by the way? Sure is. Hey, congratulations. Trent Goudreau is qualified for the 630 Ched Guns N' Roses trip to Vegas. Way to go. But yeah, here's the deal. So the unions are going to be, and they don't, they don't get to bargain. They don't get to negotiate. They don't get to tear up their contracts anytime they want. It's, you better believe that that date circle on their calendar as well. And they probably, I would imagine, would not be looking at going up against a conservative government that would say, listen, cupboards are bare. And like Graham Thompson just said, you're lucky if there's just a wage freeze. But with an NDP government, I mean, where is its support base? To whom does it feel beholden, potentially speaking? So as Graham writes, the NDP government, the friend of public sector workers, will have to sit across the table in contract talks and explain that the cupboard is bare. Asks Thompson, just how long will the honeymoon between those workers and the government last if the government tries to impose a wage freeze in negotiations? Furthermore, because of a ruling, a Supreme Court ruling, it's the NDP that has to rewrite the law to dictate which public sector workers are deemed essential services, thus denied the right to strike. Now, if you pay attention to what some prominent NDP ministers have said in the news in the last six months. You better believe we pay attention to it. David Egan, among those, Brian Mason as well, that have supported workers' rights to strike, have supported workers' rights to what they will spin as fair negotiations. And a right to strike in many cases is integral in fair negotiations. But this is also a government that needs to make sure that teachers in school are in schools and that nurses are in hospitals. And they want to keep these public sector workers working as happy as possible. But where do you think that public sentiment lies right now? I could say, and I'm not saying it, I could say, just to prove a point, if you're out of work right now, but looking, give us a call. And we could just go call after call after call after call after call all day long. There are literally tens of thousands of Albertans. All of us know one. I can say with confidence. If you don't know a single person that's lost their job in the last year, wow. A charmed life. We all know somebody that's out of work. So where do you think public sympathy will be from zero to 10 if nurses and teachers walk out and strike because they're not getting a four or 6% raise over the next three years? I would suggest instead of honks of support as people are driving by, you may get a bit of a different reaction. If you're a union threatening a strike right now, I would suggest the climate is probably working against you. Listener says, what if the NDP does give teachers and nurses an increase. Do you not think they'll do that? I do. From where? 
Joe Cece, yeah, he wouldn't say the number, and I get it. The wait till they release the budget. They're expecting, get this, in the next year, a $10.5 billion deficit. I pointed it out before. That's what the prime minister said he was willing to incur federally. That's what the provincial government is looking at next year. Overspending by $10.5 billion, more than half the value of the Heritage Savings Trust Fund. And you think they're going to try to give teachers or nurses a raise? If you want to guarantee you won't be elected again. If you want to add a few voices to this upstart coup d'etat, and I'm saying it facetiously, go ahead and try to give them a raise. Respect the hell out of teachers and nurses myself, but I'm sorry, now is not the time to get a raise. Headlines are coming up, and then we've got open line time. We'll get back to our talk on the Syrians and hopefully jump into the mailbag as well. Many of you had comments on that Vince Lee conversation we closed out our broadcast week with last Friday. You remember that? All of that's coming up. You never know what's going to take off on this show. Sometimes it's a, a caller. Sometimes it's a text we read. Sometimes it's something that I'll say off the cuff. But it's Graham Thompson in our conversation about his column in the Edmonton Journal, what if the Alberta election had been held this year, that brings up the fact that the NDP government's got some big union negotiations to take care of this year, including nurses and teachers. And many of you chiming in on the text line to 630-630, Brian says, I don't care what teachers or healthcare workers did or didn't get over the last five years. The government has indicated there will be no public sector layoffs. And for that security, they should get no pay increase for the length of their new contract. That from Brian. Yeah, you know, I mean, several callers to this show, several texters, have over the last few weeks or even longer than that suggested that it's time to call. It's time to lay off. It's time to hit middle management and upper management hard in health services. It's time to lay off teachers. It's time to, you know, increase class sizes, however you'd manage it. And then for every message like that, there's one where someone will say, ah, we did that in the early 90s. You may remember or you may not. But it had a really, really big impact, especially here in Edmonton. And it was tough. But it took years to recover from that. So is that the right play? So Brian brings up an interesting scenario here. Put it to the unions. We'll give you a 4% raise over three years or a 6% raise over three years. But we're going to cut 5% of your workforce. Take it or leave it. Or a wage freeze and everybody keeps their jobs. Pretty good deal right now, isn't it? A lot of good, talented, hardworking people out of work right now. No fault of their own. Gerald says it's funny how everything comes around full circle. These are the people that were against big oil and now there's no money. Sean, meantime, says teachers did not get a raise when oil was $100 a barrel. 1% over the last five years. So when is a good time? That from Sean. Grant says maybe the nurses and teachers' wage increases are included in that $10 billion projected deficit. We don't know that for sure yet, do we? You're right, Grant, we don't. I'd like to see a government try to pull that off. I'd like to see a government hand out big raises when they're about to run a record deficit. And by I'd like to see, I mean 
I dare them to do it, but I really hope they don't. And actually, I don't even dare them to do it. So basically, I'm not saying anything at all. I'm saying it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But I've been wrong before. Another says, hey, is it the fact that the healthcare workers have not had a collective agreement in place for almost two years? Is that the topic today? Firefighters were in that position a while ago as well. You remember that? Or did, I mean, how much do we actually know? We don't know. The only reason I know about the firefighters is because I chum around with a couple of them. They didn't have an agreement for years. And when they finally did, a lot of them got some pretty handsome retro payments. There's a lot of people that are working without collective agreements. Listener out of Edmonton says, why does the public sector expect increases every year? In private industry, you have to earn your increases. Most public sector services are, are slipping. Service levels are dropping. Yet teachers, as an example, expect an increase every year. Well, you know, I mean, people want their pay to reflect increases in cost of living, right? People want their pay to reflect inflation, if you haven't had a raise, even 1% or 2 or 3% for 10 years, the $70,000 a year you're making right now is not as much as the $70,000 you were making in 2007, right? I mean, basic math. That's how it goes. So I get why people want raise. I mean, who doesn't want a raise? But timing-wise, and it's in any industry. I mean, I'm not afraid to shine the light right here. I mean, this is an advertising-driven business, radio Every business is experiencing slowdowns. Now, we're blessed to have partners that believe in this show and believe in this station, but if I were to walk into Sid Smith's office right now and demand a raise, I can tell you how that would go. It would be a very quick meeting, regardless of the fact that this is unabashedly and undeniably the best talk radio show in North America. <laughs> I kid. We'll fit in a quick break. We'll be back. Let's open up the phones, Gina. 780-496-0063. I see a familiar number chiming in. Let's add to that list. We'll be right back. Kelsey, when Garrick popped her head into the studio, said uh, there was a caller from Drumheller, by the way, that made the point when we're talking about union negotiations, public sector workers looking for deals, Looking for contracts, looking for something in stone. Some of them obviously will be looking for raises. I mean, who wouldn't when your time comes? You know, if they say, would you like to argue your case for a raise or not? I mean, who's going to say no? But thanks to the caller from Drumheller that points out the RCMP are involved as well. They haven't had a pay increase since 2014. I made a comment that despite the fact that this is obviously and undeniably the best talk show in all of North America, wink, wink, that there's not a chance I'd walk into Sid Smith's office right now and ask for a raise. The listener out of Edmonton says, you're actually the number two show. Uh, you'll need better callers if you want to beat Coast to Coast. But a great show nonetheless. Thank you very much. Do you check out Coast to Coast? It's one of my... It, it, George Nuri hosts it. It airs right here on Chet from 1 to 5 in the morning. Now, if I do indeed need better callers to beat Coast to Coast, then now is the time. So no pressure. To those of you that are holding the line, to 780-496-0063, Dingo, you're first up. Good morning. Hey, hey. What's on your mind? Well, I'll tell you what. I haven't had a raise in three years. In fact, I'm on salary, so I asked this year, in light of the economy, that if I could just have an extra week of holidays, because it makes no difference. Right. And I was, I was denied. And if yeah, I think if one public 
union gets a raise, Notley can expect a riot at the legislature, and she should. And one last point I just want to say, with, with 100,000 Albertans out of work and them calling for a carbon tax and Trudeau calling for a carbon tax, we every Albertan should refuse to, to complete either the long or short census form until he stops catering to Quebec. They're, they're putting up roadblocks. He's giving money to Bombardier. And now, and now they're talking about the uh, French's uh, mustard slash uh, ke uh, Heinz ketchup. You know what? That's a French company. Don't care. <laughs> so, Mike, you're going to be eating your freedom fries is what you're saying. That's exactly right. <laughs> All right, buddy. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. You know, Mike, Mike touches on something, though. I mean, what, have, what have you done? to preserve your employment? Or what have you done to get the equivalent of a raise if you knew that a raise wasn't going to happen? Brown Bill, uh, chiming in from Swan Hills this morning. Good morning to you. Says, my wage has been cut 20% in the last year. Says, I wouldn't mind seeing public service experience the same thing. He says, then there's also the topic uh, of unfunded liabilities. Another listener out of St. Wahlberg, Saskatchewan, says, I went to work this year with a 41% reduction in pay. Another says, uh, so you do understand that teachers, firemen, etc., require a raise to reflect the cost of living increase, right? So what about a pensioner getting about $1,000 a month and then seeing a $4 a month raise? Absolutely. That's why we open up the phones, why we open up the text lines. Everybody's got their own personal story, and that's a great point. Carol, what's your point? Well, I listen to Coast to Coast, so that might explain <laughs> maybe the dumbness of this question. But with the price of oil being so low and the world having a huge supply of oil, why is there the urgency to actually build pipelines for something that is selling so cheap and we've got too much of it just seems to um, be economically you know contradictory mm. yeah that's a great question carol so, it's a great I don't point know, like it and you know if the oil companies how do they make money when this price of oil is this well, and, and in some cases, and I'm not an expert here, and I have no doubt that I can get corrected very quickly by our knowledgeable audience, but Carol, you're right, in some cases, with the cost of extracting some of this bitumen, oil needs to be at a minimum price for oil companies to even break even. So some projects would be put on hold no matter what until oil's back around $60 a barrel, which is the number that some people have provided us. Yeah, so I'm going to try to find out like why, you know, but why do we really need these new pipelines uh, other than, you know, creates jobs and so on? That's the number one, yeah. yeah. And, 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 to, and to, to get oil to market, to get oil to Tidewater, but you're right, Carol, the, and, and with the influence, and, and now this is opening up a big conversation, and I get a little bit out of my depth here, but you talk about OPEC, and you talk about the Saudis, and you talk about supply and demand, and they're doing everything they can to eviscerate uh, the American shale market, and, and Canada comes along with that as well. I'll tell you what, Carol, you've essentially asked the question, to tens of thousands of people. I have no doubt on the text line somebody will give us a better answer than I possibly could. Okay, well, thanks for your time. Hey, thanks for your time. I appreciate that. David calling in from Onaway this morning. Hi, David. Hi, in answer to your last caller's question, Ryan, is because we don't get the world price. Our oil sells primarily into the States, and it is significantly discounted. We get somewhere just over half 
what the world price is. That's why the oil companies and the province and the country should be trying to get it to tide water where we, we would get a lot more money for our In other words, if we didn't just have the Americans as our number one customer, David, if we were able to get it to Tidewater and foreign shores, we wouldn't have to offer the discounts? That's right. Yep, because they can get oil from several places in the States. And so it's like you, if you're trying to sell something, if your customer has several people that they can buy from, you've got to compete. And Mm. the only way we compete is because it's heavy oil is we have to discount it. Mm. David, was there something else you wanted to mention, or did you just want to answer that question? No, I, actually, I, what I wanted to mention was, the late, I come from England, as you can probably tell from my accent. The Labour Party in England is the equivalent of the NDP here. And many, many years ago, um, party politics goes into the cities as well, because it's um, a lot more people in a smaller area. But the Labour Party, and I can't remember if it was Manchester or Birmingham, but they're fairly big cities, they got into power because people got fed up with public work sitting around doing nothing. You'd find five people leaning on shovels and one person working type of thing. They did a deal with the unions. If you want to keep your jobs, then you have to bid on all of the jobs that the city has to offer. Those guys got so good at it in two years, the Labour Party got voted out anyway because all of the contractors funded the Conservatives and tossed them out. They were losing so much money. So be careful, because the NDP and the unions might be smart enough to do that here as well. All right, David, I appreciate the call. Thanks very much. I've got to fit in one quick break. When we come back, I don't know if it's humanly possible, but we'll try to get Jen, Richard, Chris, and Dell all in before the top of the clock. On the pipeline question posed by Carol, Fiducci says, Carol maybe doesn't realize how much oil Canada imports. He says, why do we do that when we have it here? Dingo says, foreign oil should be banned to force Quebec to buy from Alberta or get horses. Another says, this is Andy, it takes 10 years to get pipelines approved and three to build them. Another says, why pipelines? Why? Well, because money stays here and doesn't wind up in Saudi pockets. All right, everybody gets 45 seconds. And Chris, you're first up. What's on your mind? Um, I, I'm just thinking about who or what, how much more money they make off the byproducts oil. It's not just uh, the price of the oil itself before it's refined. There's, I've heard it's up to $250 a barrel that they reap from uh, refining and producing byproducts as well. Mm. So this is the argument to keep her going even when prices are low, you're saying? All right, great point, Chris. I appreciate that. Thanks. Sorry to cut you off. Jen, what's on your mind? Um, I just wanted to add to the last fellow who talked about the wage decreases. What people are forgetting is years ago when the PCs were in, all the doctors, teachers, and nurses, they all took a rollback, and then their wages were frozen, and that was during the good times. For, For about five years, the teachers got no raise. So people are forgetting that that happened years ago, so now they're trying to play catch up because of Klein's doing years ago about wage freezes. So I just wanted to mention that. All right, Jen, I appreciate you making that point. Thanks very much. Richard, a familiar voice. How are you? uh, Good morning. Not bad. Uh, Well, we have to remember it was the PC federally, like Brian Mulroney, who brought in free trade, and that's why the states get everything they need from us for nothing. And when we need or anything, anyhow, with the tariffs they put on, softwood and lumber debate, all that, anything that we try to sell to them, 
they get it for nothing. So mm. anyhow. Uh, Richard, I don't know enough yet about the TPP and how that's going to impact NAFTA. A lot of people are saying it essentially tears it in half. So we'll have to see once it, we actually have the benefit of looking back and, and seeing exactly how it's rolling out. Right. And all the uh, late... And- all the legislative stuff that the PCs here put in the last 44 years was, you know, there to keep them in power. So how can the NDP basically, they have to follow the rules that are there, but they didn't make the rules. Mm. So it's going to take uh, one term just to try and get on track. So they're getting blamed again for the 44 years of entitlement. Give them a chance, you know, give them one term it, just to try and get things rolling on track. But just my thoughts. All right, Richard, thanks for sharing. And Daily Dell. You know, someone has a conspiracy theory, Dell. They say that I always bring you up last, right before we hit the top of the clock, so I tee you up to be cut off. Probably. <laughs> they might be right. Uh, okay, I got a shotgun blast for you. Okay. Okay, Syria, refugee versus immigration. There's a vast difference between somebody fleeing a war zone and just ends up in a country to live there versus somebody who actually picks and chooses which country they want to go to. I think the biggest fear is is that refugees show up expecting, I'm going to live the same life I lived in Syria and do the same thing and hate the same people in groups that I did in Syria because that's right there versus somebody who immigrates to Canada and goes, oh, this is how Canadian culture is. That's what I want to become. So a lot of people have an issue with that, I think, hmm. is where a lot of this arises from. Something to think uh, about. PC, PC early call. If the PCs hadn't done the early call, we wouldn't have an NDP election. We wouldn't have an NDP government in power. If the NDP government hadn't won the election in Alberta, the Liberals wouldn't have won federally, nor the NDP. That's quite a statement. The, the PC would have maintained power without any rock in the boat. It empowered the NDP and the Liberals. Uh problem with the NDP, $10.5 billion deficit. The bigger problem is you had the uh, interim PC leader on last week. Oh, well, we would have only ran a $9 billion deficit, and no one talks about cuts. They no one's talking to... about them yet. Hey, Dell, I got to cut you off. Thanks for calling. Got... Oh. Hey, <laughs> okay, five seconds. Hurry. Eileen Bell's going to kill me. Uh, no, Gina Michael says, Mann. no, I'm going to kill you, Jesperson. Okay, Michael Mann. Global warming. He just released a study showing there is a temperature freeze, and now they can't figure out what's causing global warming or why the temperatures haven't gone up. This okay. is a hockey stick graph guy. I'll Google it. We'll talk to you soon. Google it. Thanks very much, Dell. Headlines are coming right up. And then, is porn addiction a real thing? We'll talk to Dr. Corey Hrushka.